Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. We're going to do something a little bit different today. So I've got Lockie and Marcus with me. And we are also joined by Alice Pearson, who is director of the Household Cavalry Museum. Alice, great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's such a thrill to be here. I'm really excited. So we're going to have a more kind of general discussion between you, myself, Lockie and Marcus, kind of talking about the Household Cavalry, probably with a Napoleonic kind of influence, not least because you've currently got a Napoleonic eagle over at the Household Cavalry, which is very exciting. I'll be honest, Marcus and I did sulk ever so slightly when we were, <laughs> we were at the National Army Museum recently for a talk and we didn't get to take selfies by it. So we're basically going to blame you for it. But also, Lockie, you're doing a tour in connection with all of this, aren't you? This is right. Yeah. So, I mean, regular list- listeners know me as a, a First World War boy, really. But yeah, I'm, I'm maybe kind of more of a generalist than I let on at times. And I certainly guide the Waterloo battlefield, uh, but I've been a London guide for quite a long time as well. So um, we're doing a little project, a little walking tour, um, which is running on Sunday. And yeah, this is, this is part of the fun and games uh, for it. This is good. This is good. Let's dive in then. Lots of people won't know about household cavalry. For ordinary folks who aren't kind of associated with the British Army, let's deal with those basics. So who were the household cavalry, first of all? And then, and this is a hell of a broad question, isn't it? But what's their kind of significance in the history of the British Army? Well, that is quite a big question. Um, So for us, just as an overview, what we were, what we are, 
we'll leave where we hope to be for another time. Um, but Charles I uh, was the king in the Civil War. It didn't end very well for him, and he lost his head in Whitehall in 1649. His son, Charles II, didn't want that to happen to him. He ran away, was exiled in Europe. And when he came back, um, again, for another time, we could be here for days. I could delve into that and have a, have a great time with you guys. But when he came back to protect himself, he brought what is now known as the Household Cavalry. They were made up of members of his court. Um, and they suppose they were military people. And I'm sure I'll upset people when I say this. They were military, but you can't forget that they had also been beaten by Cromwell. So the quality of their um, military ability is, is under question. But they were the monarch's uh, private bodyguard. So we have the lifeguards, and they were always members of the king's court. And we have what we now call the Blues and Royals, who interestingly were uh, descended from Cromwell's own men. So they were Cromwell's men, later an iteration were Earl of Oxford, so they stayed the Blues. Um, and when we were looking at the Battle of uh, Waterloo, we're going to focus on today the Royal Dragoons. And in our modern terms, they have combined to make the Blues and Royals the Royal Horse Guard Dragoons. So if everybody is still uh, following me, um, I'll let you know that if you came to Horse Guards today and looked at our soldiers on duty, you'd either see soldiers in red who are lifeguards or soldiers in blue who are the Blues and Royals. And it's uh, their forebears that we're really interested in at the Battle of Waterloo. Everybody was there, but the Eagle was captured uh, by the Royal Dragoons. And shall we dive straight into the Eagle next as our, our next kind of point of discussion? Because... Mm not to kind of rub the nose of the French in it, but we do have a habit of taking a, a fair few of these. So which one have you guys got right now? And also, why is it at NAM and why have you guys got hold of it at the moment? Well, we have the Eagle of the 105th. Um, we have had a museum at Horse Guard since 2007. And before that, we had a behind-the-wire archive at Windsor since the 60s. But a decision was made before my time that a behind-the-wire viewing of an eagle wasn't acceptable. And it was given to the National Army Museum for their care for the nation so everybody could see it. They've done a fabulous job of taking care of it. Um, at the 200th anniversary, they very kindly loaned it to us for a dinner of some very patriotic and excited Blues and Royals and sent um, someone I felt very sorry for to keep an eye on it to make sure that the um, happy and celebratory soldiers didn't do anything wrong to the eagle. They probably just took selfies and, and raised a glass or two to it. Um, and building on that, they very kindly, after the pandemic, knowing that we, we um, wanted to do everything we could to draw attention back to our small little museum and horse guards, kindly loaned it to us from their national collection to our small collection. And I hope that they have not regretted it because we've had a lot of fun. We had a massive parade um, with mounted horse guards and a carriage taking it all the way from Chelsea, following Wellington's um, funeral parade, through up to uh, Wellington Arch, Apsley House, down along the Mall and up to Horse Guards. Of course, we didn't continue up to St Paul's, it stayed where it is now. But we had a lot of fun, um, we involved everybody, and if I do say so, we did make, um, did make the news in France, so we quite enjoyed the day. <laughs> that's good, that's good. Marcus, do you uh, want to give us a little bit on the Eagles and why they matter to the French so much? do the use while they matter and also you know um we've got corporal styles as well just to quickly mention um so yeah the eagles are the standards of the french uh primarily their, their infantry but they did actually you might have seen some come to auction recently even have them on their commissioned ships of the line uh, which is very unknown uh, but they did actually the eagle represents the kind of the pinnacle of the emperor the imperial court napoleon bonaparte and they were revered items they were really sacred uh, by the time we've got to Waterloo, 
And just the first battalion of the French infantry uh, had them for each regiment. Um, by this point, they typically had three battalions to a regiment. That changes wildly before there's anybody jumps out and shouts at us. Uh, but that's what it's meant to be. So that the, the first battalion, so the in their mind, the best battalion, are carrying this eagle forward, fluttering with the tree couleur underneath with all their battle honours, often with ribbons and uh, traditional honours on top of them. Uh, as you know, stereotypical, um, History tells us the French, especially at Waterloo, are packed into dense columns at Waterloo. You know, it's a, it's a small battlefield, um, back basically about three miles wide, and the French have got tens of thousands of troops marching up the slopes. And as they're doing so, mostly from uh, here we have Durlon's corps. It's a huge portion of the French army. Uh, Uxbridge is very good timing as the French are trying to move from basically column. We think they're trying to extend out into line, they're a bit vulnerable. Uxbridge, Duke of Wellington's second in command, launches his heavy cavalry. Uh, famously, the what's known as the Union Brigade, because they've got the Scots Greys and Irish Horse, and the Household Brigade, which mostly the regiments that Alice has talked off about, uh, about. And they launch with real momentum down the slope at this forming moment. And they smash Durlon's corps in confusion. And they capture two eagles. Uh, sergeant, I was about to call him Ensign uh, Ewart of the Scots Greys, captures the 45th Eagle, becomes an Ensign. And uh, then we have the 105th Eagle, which is now at the Household Cavalry Museum, along with a Waterloo medal for the man who captured it. And uh, there we have uh, Corporal Styles, uh, an incredible man given some of his background. I think he was a bit of a bit of a giant and had a really quite tumultuous career and uh, there's a few different versions of this story so Alice feel free to jump in uh, but apparently he rides into the middle of the 105th fighting for it um, along with his officers there's a there's a real good account of bayonets being thrust at hips and smashing down through French shackos uh, so it's not an easy capture and he takes it and his uh, squadron leader sends him to the rear and where it's still revered today, um, rightly so, as, a, as an act of bravery with, and gallantry within that battle. And the Blues and Royals still wear it as a arm badge, as one of their honours. Uh, so it's a huge part of the, kind of the household's uh, cavalry uh, honour traditions. And, you know, the Scots Greys, as they, as Scots Green Guards, as they now are today, have their eagle as their cap badge. So the, the French eagle actually has quite a big significance within the British Army today and uh, especially the Household Cavalry and the Scots Union Guards should know those stories and the men and uh, women associated with those regiments know those stories. And we should just kind of emphasise part of the reason that these standards are so revered because you mentioned you know it's the first battalions that carry the eagle in. The other battalions they have their battle flags, they have battle standards, but the eagle is presented in person by Napoleon. It's physically handed over, he has touched it and you've got to remember Kind of for all that we love to bash Napoleon on this podcast, because, you know, for reasons that we've discussed in the past, Napoleon was a great motivator. Right. And this is part of that thing. You know, this is something that the emperor, as the leader of the army, the person who has that ability to form personal connections with his men, hands over. He's handing over part of sort of the honour of the empire. So the regiment becomes invested in this idea that the the eagle is the battalion's honour. You see this in the British Army in exactly the same way, where you have the, the, the king's colour and then the regimental colour, exactly the same principles at work here. But then, as you say, when it comes to Waterloo, you get the, the French ultimately losing two of these eagles within Durlon's corps in that impeccably timed assault. And you mentioned how 
Delon's core is probably in the process of trying to sort of unfold as it's on the cusp of gaining the Allied Ridge. But you've also got to bear in mind what a crucial moment that was in the battle. That's probably as close as Napoleon came to winning that day. In all honesty, yes, okay, you could say, well, what about the Imperial Guard? And yes, the Imperial Guard makes some headway. But the, the Allied left flank was breaking. That's why the, the Union and Heavy Cavalry Brigades had to go in, because the Allied left was crumbling. And as you say, it was impeccably timed. A number of the units had just come through hedges, so they were disordered and they were trying to get themselves back into formation, and they just cut through. But what you've sidestepped mentioning there, Marcus, is, of course, the downside to all of this, which is that they overextend. Um, Alice, I'm interested in your take on that, because when you're telling the story of this eagle, you've got the, the what we just described, you know, that attack going in by uh, that, that cavalry charge going in. But at the same time, you've got the aftermath to that attack. So initially, it's incredibly successful. You know, it basically takes something like 11,000 men out of the battle for hours, which is a huge achievement. But then the flip side is that that attack goes horribly wrong because the British cavalry overextend themselves and then get cut off by the French dragoons and lancers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting when you think of a, a cavalry charge, you know, we've all seen it on television. It's, it's all very exciting and dramatic. But in reality, a line of, of, of mounted soldiers will, will walk and they'll slowly build up speed and they don't charge until the last possible moment. And I am aware that it's their job. But when once blood's up, it's really hard to rein them in and bring them back. So I'm not surprised that, that it happened. But the cost that they paid was obviously quite high. When we have young troopers coming to the museum and you're trying to explain to them the importance of the Battle of Waterloo, what we tend to say is, you know, the, that initial action stopped, you know, stopped the change of the day, stopped the procession to Brussels, changed the battle, it changed the war that brought peace to Europe for 100 years. It's a really good soundbite. So in honesty, we don't really concentrate on the bad side of it much because it's not quite such a good sell. <laughs> we also don't want to give the young troopers an idea that they're allowed to not do what they're told. So we, the answer is we don't really focus on it very much uh, because we like to point out the good bit. But I would be really interested to... to so my interest in Waterloo, personal and professional, I've, I've learned a lot looking at this exhibition together and bringing this exhibition together and, and learning a lot about how many times in that day things could have changed in a moment. And I did hear a story, I'd be interested in, in your opinions on it. So we have um, a hoof of Marengo, Napoleon's um, horse in the battle. And we, we like talking about the, uh, the the horses, Copenhagen, and obviously Napoleon's um, horse, Marengo. And I've heard a story, I don't know if this is true, that Napoleon, um, sorry, that Wellington's horse was so exhausted by the end of the battle that when Wellington dismounted, Copenhagen kicked out and missed Wellington's head by a small margin. And if he'd killed Wellington, it would have changed the, you know, sort of leadership of the country for years afterwards. And I do think that we concentrate on all of these wonderful statements about how victorious we were. But so often things didn't go to plan and it could have ended incredibly differently. Um, and it wasn't in any way luck. But it was an incredibly interesting day that could have gone in a million different ways. You sort of got some Doctor Strange or Matrix potential outcomes of this day. And what we celebrate, it, it's sort of just one combination of events that happened on that day. And I would say, you know, the, the, the fallout of that charge, not regrouping as it was supposed to be, could have ended in lots of different ways. And we were very, in hindsight, for myself, very lucky that it wasn't worse. 
I think you, you make a really good point there that not only, you know, the blood's up, of course, they're going to get out of hand. And no doubt we'll talk about, you know, there's a question of a pattern there. But I want to bring Lockie in because I don't know what, Lockie, you, you've done a number of battlefields from a, a tour guide perspective. Waterloo is tiny, right? I mean, like Marcus said, it's about three miles wide. It's what, maybe a mile deep. And when you look at it and you look at where they are breaking Derlon's column and then where they charge onto, which is essentially the French gun line, it's no distance at all. You could walk it in 15, 20 minutes. So it, on horseback, it's not really a surprise that they overextend. No, it's 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 a it's a bit of a funny battle at field as well. I mean, like you say, having done quite a lot, I'll say it's bigger than Agincourt. Um, but also, kind of, I mapped this out onto London as well because you know, I was quite interested to see the sort of scale of the battlefield on on London and where it is. So, having carefully sort of drawn out or, or planned out, if you imagine kind of Hougoumont is um, on you know, Wellington's right, if you imagine it kind of on the junction of um, Brompton Road and Knightsbridge, um, Hyde Park Corner, where we where we would start this tour, is kind of roughly level with Hougoumont um, and and where the you know the Imperial Guard. Uh, marched up through and, and they got a little bit further up into Hyde Park before they were stopped. Um, both armies trekked past Buckingham Palace um, or through Buckingham Palace Gardens on the way up the road towards uh, Brussels. Um, Wellington's crossroads is quite close to Berkeley Square and um, the Prussians when they started arriving were over on the kind of river side of things so close to where you see sort of Lambeth Bridge is, um, is Plance Noir. So in, in London terms, oh and, and General Picton was killed coming down um, Regent Street. If, you, if you're interested. Um, <laughs> I'm shuddering at the idea of the Imperial Guard marching past Absolute House there, by the way. <laughs> it's going to haunt my nightmares. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Um, so, yeah, in terms of kind of, I wanted to kind of get that scale uh, a little bit because it's not a huge battlefield. It's certainly not when you compare it to like the opening day of the, the Somme offensive. Uh, for example, where you, you're across, you know, maybe 18 miles or so of, 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 of battlefield. So it's, it's, a, it's a compact thing and you can cover quite a lot in quite a short space, but it's quite, it's quite open as well. And you can see the battlefield. It is a battlefield you have to kind of use your imagination on a little bit because it's unusual for, for, for field battlefields, i.e. ones that haven't been built on and the, the topography has changed or rather has been changed um in the in the, the shaving of the Mont Saint-Jean Ridge as it were to, to create the lion mound so you do have to use your imagination a little bit on the Waterloo battlefield even though it is right there uh, in front of you and the key buildings are there uh, whether they've been put back together you know redone a little bit in the case of you know bits of Hougoumont and La Haye Sainte but um but but essentially where you you expect to see them and um and you can you can see a lot and that they've actually, you've got 200 years of agriculture to factor in. So they think it's about five metres up that we've lost because of the lion's mound, but probably actually five metres gained up from the steepest part because it's just gently been ploughed over 200 years uh, since then. Um, if I could just confirm, as far as I'm aware, Alice's story, yes, Copenhagen did lash out and miss the Duke of Wellington's uh, heads or chest by mere inches. Um, everything I've seen is pretty much confirming that. But you remember the man had been in the saddle um, for about 17 hours, give or take. So I think he was sore, but Copenhagen must have been exhausted because Wellington, famously a micromanager, didn't like leaving things to other people, was dashing around to and fro a lot. Um, and I was also just thinking about the Eagles. The reason actually that they're so significant twofold is one, nearly all of the 
Empire eagles had been destroyed, captured or taken away in 1814. So these eagles were issued in the summer of um, 1815 on the Champ de Mars by Napoleon. Again, there's a beautiful painting of this of him handing out these eagles and people almost worshipping them as they come down from above and some sort of like Grecian god uh, handing them out. And you know, this is the this is the cult Napoleon that Zach and I often talk about. But it's an amazing painting. And so the 1815 eagles are different to the earlier eagles. They were slightly rushed through, um, but no less revered. Uh, and the other thing is, as far as I'm aware, and anyone's welcome to correct me on this the only eagles surviving because of the french bourbon restoration are ones in military museums ones that have been captured so ironically if you want to see a french imperial eagle you need to go to one of their air inverted commons enemy museums uh Apsi house uh, has the some of the uh, civil uh, eagles but other ones we see in in russian museums in austrian museums or as you said national museum now the household cavalry museum you have to go to the Hassel Cavalry Museum to see a French eagle. You can't go to Paris. Gosh, that's so interesting. I I, I like sort of that um, parallel with it almost sort of being an idol, you know, sort of an idol, a deity. You, you, a lot of the uh, people come to the museum, they ask me why the blues wear the eagle, as Marcus was referring to on, on the sleeve of their, their uniform. And I would say that if, if, if to the UK, Waterloo is a symbol of national pride and identity, then to the blues and royals, that's what the eagle is. It was such an important important symbol to them and um, as Marcus said people wear it but as, as, as we may not have touched on yet people also tattoo it all over their body um, and in Camp Bastion it was on the wall of the, the Blues and Royals headquarters I mean it's what the motorcycle club have on the front of their helmets it's it's on absolutely everything um, and it is really a, it's a matter of pride it's a touchstone um, and it's really interesting that that was similar for obviously for, for Napoleon handing that over um, and we've taken that on too um, so it's a big symbol. And what's really interesting is having some of the young Blues and Royals come in. They've picked up that love for the eagle without knowing the full story. So we've had a, a wonderful time this summer showing it to them in, in their home. It's been it's been quite an emotional journey for them. Um, so they've really connected with it. Yeah, I mean, I was investigating um, whether I could acquire like a little model eagle just for our meeting point for the tour, actually, just to then put on a put on a pole, maybe with a flag. Trouble is, that we're actually going to have the household cavalry going past us at one point on the tour, and I don't want any old reflexes kicking in or anything. <laughs> <laughs> they would definitely take that off you. And it's interesting that you say that because it's not, I'm not leaking this. It came out last year publicly, so I can tell you. When the museum opened in 2007, we did a pageant with a small recreation of Waterloo and we had serving soldiers recreate it and i'm not lying a fight broke out so the queen was watching the pageant and they were <laughs> and they weren't very well behaved so do you know what lucky if you want to bring an eagle down just let me know when you're doing it i'm going to come down and watch maybe with popcorn <laughs> we'll have a lucky day <laughs> The thing is though if nobody's met lucky in person he's like six foot three hundred and <laughs> chunky rugby player even if I'm on a horse, I'm not going to try and take that eagle off you. I would absolutely wimp out of that one. I think he's got more of the build of um, Corporal Styles about him, actually, than uh, than the yeah. French uh, eagle bearer. So maybe, oh. maybe we can reverse it. Maybe we can get Lockie a horse and we can... I, can yeah, I mean, I know a guy. Yeah, you can have a horse. That's not a problem. <laughs> Marcus, I thought you were going to say Lieutenant Le Gros, who broke into um, the North Gate of Hougamont. <laughs> I mean, the possibility big endless, but somebody's going to end up getting hurt very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Can I pick on something? Pick up on something that you were just saying, Alice, about kind of educating the the incoming soldiers. Mm. What's your role within that? Because you know, a lot of these young—they're often young, 
men and women who who come in um, to um, as as troopers. Perhaps the officers maybe have been to university. Some might not have done. However, what do they know of their regimental history? Do they have a choice in choosing to join the Blues and Royals before? hand uh, and if so you know do they have an awareness of that history or is it kind of your job once they're allocated to a regiment to say look this is the the family that you're joining and this is the history of you know your your ancestors as it were in arms mm. well it's it's a it's a little bit of both with myself having the least important role um uh, because it's it, the regiment itself uh, influences you heavily were you to have family or friends or you know some association with lifeguards or, or the blues and royals you would have a choice to, to pick so you have to come to the army you have to do the basic training if you're a soldier or you have to go to sand test if you're an officer and then when you join the regiment you you are offered the choice if you don't have a preference you will be assigned to whatever is required um but we would we would never put somebody in the lifeguards if their family had been in the blues and royals for generations it's just not worth it um what we tend to say to people is blues and royals and the lifeguards are, are like siblings they love each other but they don't like each other very much so we always have to make sure that people are happy um with what side they're going to be on and the number one thing you have to have to be in the regiment is you've got to want to be there so it's a hard job it's long long days uh you know very long days and um, they've got to really want to be there. And if someone were to know about the, the history of their sort of their team, uh, they'd be very proud of it. But if they didn't know much, they would come to me and I would give a tour to them. In their early training uh, era time, they do khaki ride, which they learn to ride a horse, they learn to care for the animal. And they wear khaki clothes. We're not very good at giving names to things. And then they learn to clean their kit and that's called a kit ride. And they learn to ride in their kit. At some point in this very long schedule, they come to the museum and they get uh, some history thrown in there. And whether or not they enjoy it, it's uh, it's a couple of hours off from running PT, kit cleaning and early morning rehearsals. So I think most people come to us for a bit of a rest. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and they seem to enjoy it when they're there. Yeah, I think it's so, I think it's so important. Um, for my limited experience on the army side of things, uh, 12 years in the reserves, but also having worked for quite a few years at almost a sister museum to household cavalry down at Bovington, the tank museum, you see all the young troopers, all the young officers, potential officers, and then people coming back to, and they're always given an afternoon at museum and they kind of go, go learn some of your history, soak it up. And then it comes out in the most important places, in the bars, in the pubs, in the messes. And, you know, you'll have a Waterloo dinner. Mm. Different regiments will have an Alamein dinner or a D-Day uh, celebration tour and all sorts of things. And that's where it comes together. And this is because the army is effectively just tribes, as Alice yeah, was saying. That's you know, a good description. And they will they will form in, you know, and they will form and fight each other, whether physically in the pub or on the rugby pitch or on the football pitch if they don't have the option. But as soon as somebody else appears, which is normally the Navy, we'll fight them if there's no one else around and then they're unleashed upon the enemy when there's the opportunity it is so tribal and they've got this pride and i i had no idea about the the tattoos but it makes complete sense 
though to me with my Napoleonic head, there's some great irony of British soldiers putting uh, a symbol of Napoleon across their bodies for life. Uh, so I'm kind of still quite enjoying that one, really. Yeah, I mean, it is a lot about factionalism, tribalism. And I think what you say is coming together, uh, you know, at the end of that selection of tribes. And, and there's a famous sort of possibly misquoted line where Wellington says, I don't know about the enemy, but by God, they scare me. And I think that's what's really important is that you are tribal, but then when you come together, you're, you're greater than the sum of your parts. Can I pick up on something that you were just talking about in terms of modern day troopers, Alice, which was the care for the horses? Hmm. Because, you know, a really integral part of the story of cavalry is, of course, your horses, right? And we, we often talk about um, the numbers of killed and wounded at Waterloo. But of course, the horses suffered just as badly. The, the famous examples that we know of are usually people like Ney, where we you know, talk about how many horses he had shot from underneath him. So what was, I don't know if this is something that you cover in the museum, but do you have a sense of how the care for the horses has changed and you know, the, the extent to which these animals suffered alongside mm -hmm. the men that they carried? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was giving a tour to a veteran from the 60s um, the other day, and he was amazed at how well the animals were cared for. And I think you've obviously there's an ebb and flow of society and how used to having animals around us we are. I would say we're not used to having horses in the city now. We're probably the one place in the city where you can come and be guaranteed to see that. But, you know, in, in the early 1800s, there would have been horses absolutely everywhere. So I think people were better with caring for, for the animals because they did it more frequently. But the quality and ability now is better and horse welfare, but also soldiers welfare is, is better now. I mean, I wouldn't say there's much difference between caring for a soldier or caring for a horse, apart from the horses were probably more valued. Um, they were very important. They cost a lot of money. They needed to be fed. The soldiers food would I'm not basing this on, on any record in front of me, but I think if it came to feeding a soldier or feeding a horse, you feed the horse first. Um, if the horse can't carry you, if the horse can't charge, then, you know, that's a heavy weight to carry. Um, the Battle of Waterloo is, is an interesting one because there are many stories about the number of horses shot, shot from under people. But I think what you've got to remember is a war horse is, is part of a unit. So we were saying earlier that, um, you know, Lockie's six foot tall. Um, well, the reason that we would have six foot tall soldiers when we didn't have buses and, and machines and massive buildings, uh, King Charles II said that our Irish draft horses, which are the horses that we ride, have to be 16 two hands at the shoulder. They have to be dark black. And the soldier is generally six foot tall with a plume on top of their head. They were a one man tank. They were there to scare you. And it's all part of the same beast that's charging towards you so you imagine you know standing next to a horse now most horses that you see out in pony club are sort of 14 hands make that 16 hands put a six foot soldier on top of it make it 24 of them and charge at something that's going to be quite scary <laughs> so they would have cared for the horses because they were so valuable they were their tanks how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I really like what you pick up on there about how actually there's an inclination to care more for horses than there is the the rank and file because certainly we have plenty of research that's been done recently ed Koss is the the guru on this who's looked at what nutritionally soldiers were meant to get and let's just kind of consider for a moment they didn't get what they were meant to get right that's why they're plundering a lot of the time and nutritionally they are burning far more than they're getting from their daily rations whereas you look at and sure wellington you know he's concerned about supply for his men and you know that's a whole massive headache and that's a separate conversation but when it comes to sustaining horses, he's got this constant worry about, you know, distribution of oats within feed. And he's writing these letters to people about, you know, so many handfuls of this and put in some of that. But don't use that type of freshly cut grass because that's going to create issues and and all of these things. So I think there is probably something in that. I mean, you would need somebody who has done all of the research on you know, how horses are cared for during this period. But I think you're on to something there, certainly. Mm. Well, I would say that, um, you know, something like two thirds of the soldiers that signed up for Waterloo had no military experience. And though we do have examples of battles where we take non-military animals to take part in them, you know, the, the world wars being being them, um, good examples of that. If you have a war horse versus an inexperienced horse, there's, there's such a difference. If that horse is not going to go into battle with you, I mean, obviously they're pack animals that they, they go with the herd, but there are certain things that a horse will not do, and you need to care for that horse to to ensure that it does it does that very important job in a military capacity. Yeah, I mean, we, we see that coming forward into into well, like I say, First World War is my is my lane really, and I think that there is the perception that the cavalry is done by the time of of the First World War. It's not actually and there's a, there's some good examples all right when it's when trench warfare is kind of at its most static there aren't very many opportunities for cavalry but you know you see little flashes around the battle of the somme and, a, and a arras <laughs> where uh, arras you actually see um the the horse is a herd animal doing its herding thing and so one unit rides off into into action another nearby unit gets a bit excited and charges off with them uh, <laughs> as well and you know that they're, they're maybe not the cleverest creatures in the world they're a bit predictable sometimes horses and this is what they do um but but come 1918 for example um when you have the german spring offensives um and there's a real shock and awe element to the early stages of these of these spring offensives massive artillery firepower that that does a huge amount of damage to british fifth army um and, and almost blows resistance out of the way. And there's points where the Germans think, hey, there's nothing but green in front of us. We're going. We've broken through the British army here and away we go. And all of a sudden, crack, whistle, 
pot, you know, they're being shot at. Where the hell's that coming from? And well, a cavalry brigade has ridden, ridden around in front of them. And they carry quite a bit of firepower, First World War cavalry. They've got, you know, the, the Lee Enfield rifle. All soldiers can fight dismounted uh, by this stage, but they've got Hotchkiss machine guns and they're bringing, what, 18 pounder um, uh, artillery by this stage as well. They're able to put a good amount of firepower down, which will at least halt a German advance long enough for infantry to catch up and get into a position. So cavalry absolutely have a role to play uh, at that time too. They're, they're not done. They're absolutely not. I mean, you'll know far more about this, but my understanding, Lockie, was that the whole point of the plans early on in the Somme campaign was let's achieve our breakthrough and then send in the cavalry. Is that right? Or is that just kind of an idiot's perception of the First World War? No, it's not. No, you, you had you had cavalry commanders there. Haig famously is a cavalry commander. He's not quite the the the, the donkey walloping idiot that he's, he's claimed to be. Um, you know, he's, he has some awareness of the of the realities of it all. And you know, actually, sometimes his criticism is that the cavalry are a bit too close. Sometimes it's more often it's it's they're too far back to exploit anything, and there's a real careful uh, juggling act. It's something he would always want to do. And you have flashes flashes of it on the Somme, where you have a bit of open country for it's actually Indian cavalry to ride into and um, you, you must have some of the unluckiest Germans in the entire battle who are actually killed with the lance uh, in, in the Battle of the Somme as they go riding through between High and Delville woods and, and, and kill a few Germans there. This is not what they were expected from, from their day, clearly. So um, yeah, it, 1918 and fighting in a kind of dismounted capacity. You, I heard the comparison, it's almost worth thinking of them like almost short range paratroopers. Uh, cavalry in the First World War. You can use them to move a, you know, a distance of a few miles very quickly, uh, and then hold things for a while until kind of infantry and you know eventually tanks come in. Tanks do not replace cavalry in the First World War. They're they're in a very different role. It's really interesting hearing you talk about that different philosophy. Go on, Marcus. That was exactly what I wanted to pick up on. Just what uh, Lockie was saying is that tanks don't replace cavalry in the First World War, but they very quickly do in the interwar period. Uh, we see a huge change from horsepower to the horsepower of mechanization. Um, cavalry very reluctantly give up their horses. Um, there's certain ceremonies. I know the yeomanry um, actually snap some of their spurs uh, because they're dismounted and they're basically outraged. That's the, the reserve uh, cavalry. And some try to hold on quite a long period. They're led by the Royal Tank Regiment, who are always in armor. And slowly it starts to, to change to mechanize. And we see these big armored formations on Solzhou Plain of cavalry regiments in either light tanks to do some reconnaissance role. There's actually heavy tanks as well, but or medium tanks uh, predominantly for the British. Ironically, these maneuvers go really well and they're observed by the Germans who see it and start to write the Blitzkrieg from this. And the British are too reluctant. They start to put the troops back on foot when they can, when they should be putting them in trucks and pushing the warfare forwards and quickly. Uh, but we see that through the lineage today that actually I quite like the fact that we rate the British Army regiments in the Household Cavalry and the Household Cavalry, or technically a little um, postscript within that. We rate them as armoured heavy cavalry and light cavalry even today when they're in. So when you see the troops in the Jackal, which look like a big uh, off-road vehicle with a heavy machine gun or grenade launcher on top, uh, we rate that as light cavalry. Uh, that's what we, we call them today. So. We haven't gone that far as uh, the British Army doesn't like to give up history traditions, but they're, they're known as CAV, they're known as cavalry. Um, that's who we've got. So the lineage like really follows through from the men and women now in the household cavalry um, through to the men at Waterloo and, you know, everywhere from, you know, the Bocage or the Somme in between. Uh, that, that tradition of charging at the enemy 
whether that's going to be in a light tank and then put it in reverse because you're on reconnaissance or if it's a heavy tank you know challenger two going up to challenger three and smashing through them then you are just imitating the the household cavalry at waterloo and what they did it's there's those kind of ethos is there and if they're picking up in a museum as much as a classroom i think it's really interesting but you say that because um the household division's job is to protect the monarch at home or abroad uh, or at home and abroad should i say and how we split it now is when you're at home you're doing ceremonial duties and when you're abroad you're doing operational duties and our operation is all in cvrts light armored vehicles and um that's a, a dual skill that all the soldiers, men and women, are trained to do. Whereas if you looked at a blank sheet of paper and you thought, what are two sides of the same coin? You probably wouldn't teach somebody to, to clean a horse, clean shiny kit, and then on the reverse, take care of an engine in the middle of the desert. But that's how we see it because of the evolution, exactly as you've described, um, of, of um, mounted warfare. Can I ask about the Grenadier Guards? Because how, how does that work in terms of you know the rivalry there as you know both have responsibility as guards um units so how does that dynamic work are we back to kind of the tribalism there or is there a kind of okay you know you boys like to think that you're you're all that but actually you know we, we've got the horses we're, we're much better than you definitely any chance for rivalry and tribalism you know we're gonna we're gonna snap that up so the household division is made from seven seven parts. So you've got English, uh, so you've got Scots, Irish and Welsh Guards, then you've got the Coldstream and the Grenadiers. So that's five. And then how we would describe it, you have the highest ranking two, and that's us. So we are the lifeguards and the blues and royals mounted on horseback, best of the best. Um, yes, I think different people tell the story in different ways. Um, we even have two museums, we work very closely with the Guards Museum at Wellington Barracks, but they represent the five foot guards. I almost said the five foot tribes. I don't know what I'm getting into now. The five foot guards and we are the two mounted. Um, so again, we're more like cousins instead of siblings. Uh, love each other because we have to, but uh, yes, tribal again. And I want to pick up on something else that Marcus said, which was kind of charge at everything, because this is another thing that kind of taps into that really interesting area of education that I'm, I'm so interested in how you deal with this, because there has always been this debate when it comes to the Peninsula War and Waterloo, that you can see a commonality of what Ian Fletcher described as kind of galloping at everything, inverted commas. You know, that if you look at Talavera, um, I think it's the, Marcus will correct me, is it the 27th Light Dragoons, Marcus, that overextend themselves? Marcus shakes his head. Um, okay, bail me out. What is it that, um, Okay, Marcus isn't able to bail me out because what you guys can't see, and this is great for podcasting, is that he's got a <laughs> dog that is practically big enough to be a horse uh, in its own right. Um, that's that's been basically um, badgering the the entire recording. But we we said that we wouldn't. Uh, it looks uh, like emphasize. he's grabbed a, a precious family heirloom and is, uh, is is dragging it around or something at the moment. Yeah, Marcus looks like he's having a rough time. Not that we should oh, uh, make any dog puns. Oh, we went there. <laughs> <laughs> And Marx is now making facial gestures at me that he implied that once we just shut the hell up. Really bad for podcasts, but he's a puppy. I can't help it. But, <laughs> but back to um, the, the history. So there is this reputation. Okay, so it's not the 27th Light Dragoons, but it's the 23rd. It's the 20-something Light Dragoons, I'm sure, that overextend themselves, essentially, up in the northern part of the battlefield, and they get cut to pieces. You've got Salamanca, where very famously there's this incredibly successful cavalry charge led by uh, Jean-Gaspard Le Marchand, French sounding name, but he's um, a French emigre um, who becomes a very senior cavalry commander, does great things for reform, 
if people have seen the, the swords that the British cavalry are using during this time, then you'll, you know, that's Le Marchand's work. That's how pivotal he was. He changed the whole doctrine. And then at Waterloo, you've got this same kind of thing, overextending themselves. So there is this pattern and there is a debate um, about the extent to which it's fair to criticise them. Wellington at one point in a letter writes that, you know, he's so frustrated with this um, habit that the cavalry have acquired of galloping at everything. So do you guys push back at that? Is it just something that you kind of go, well, maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. But, you know, can we just focus on the success for a moment here? How, how do you play that? Well, we're very good at focusing on success. And, um, you know, we're sort of several regiments um, due to nothing more glamorous than military cutbacks. There was a first and second lifeguards, and, you know, the horse guards are, are, are slimmed down from a wider grouping. And, and in response to that, we say we've been at every major battlefront for the last 350 years. I mean, we can twist anything into a positive. But I would definitely say there is a tradition of overcharging. Uh, Civil War, you know, Battle of Edge Hill, Prince Rupert overcharges, goes for the money chain. That's a cavalryman right there, isn't it? Uh, yeah, sure, my uh, regiment will be happy for me to hear me say that. But whether they're going for the money, glory, or, you know, the heat of the moment, I, I don't think we should sweep over this this fact that this, this does tend to happen. Um, you know, this communication, it was a hot day, it's hazy. You know, did it happen on purpose? Did it happen because these things happen in battle? I think... It, we weren't there. We don't know um, how how easy it is. Is it to rein back in blood up soldiers and horses in the middle of that chaos? I think quite often my line would be, "We're lucky it didn't end in in a, in a worse way." But I would probably defer to somebody with more experience in this, Marcus. Yeah, I've got him quiet for a second. Um, it was the 23rd Light Green Zach. Sorry, I couldn't interject earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, I slightly question the be at every major battle, Alice, um, with the lineage that I used to have. It's a soundbite, let it go. It's a great soundbite, definitely. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm too geeky on regimental numbers, I'm sad to say, to have slightly learned them. Uh, but yeah, that, that ethos is so important about actually charging at everything kind of goes to play. Uh, the late, great Richard Holmes used to do a fantastic like recruitment clip for the armored corps, uh, even though he was an infantry man. Um, and it, it was so right, he said that, you know, a, a quick decision now is is better than a good decision later. And that was how the, the cavalry worked as opposed to the infantry. And the, I'm talking a 1990s recruitment video, which I think is still out there on YouTube with his fantastic tweed and mustache and walking across some field somewhere. And that was the difference, you know, the other side to the cavalry, not so much the household, but the, their sister regiments is their reconnaissance side and the being in the field and extended, you know, junior officers didn't get to make many decisions in, let's say the Napoleonic Wars, it's quite held at uh, brigade level. So actually having junior officers out on picket duties with NCOs and troopers actually having to, you know, sometimes you're having troopers spy the enemy army and they're having to count, oh, how many thousand people have I seen? Because if it's a hundred, it doesn't matter. So that kind of quick ethos of I've seen something, I'm going to now dash back to the lines. And I say it's not the, the household cavalry, but actually I've kind of forgot there that Wellington uh, started to forget whether he was using light or heavy and used them interchangeably. Um, so it actually could have been the, the first dragoons in that scenario. So there's, it, it slightly changes the ethos today about how regiments go and that's inherited it's kind of like in the dna of the regiments that have got you know the 400 plus years of history above them is feeding them and uh, morphing their doctrine Lockie, can i bring you in and, and talk about this tour that you're doing so talk me through the idea behind this because you're working very closely with alice to kind of put in some 
put something together that's kind of very Napoleonic focused, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of commemorative uh, bits and bobs, be they in the form of great kind of statements of architecture or even um, or even a blue plaque on a wall, you know, sometimes. Um, but there's also ways in bringing almost anything into a, into a vaguely relevant site too. And you think of all the things that are named after Wellington or Waterloo around London and in the Royal District, there's certainly enough there to set discussions off. And that's even before we get into some of the things that are either either built or come along um, after the Napoleonic Wars, almost kind of as a, as a consequence. So, um, you know, the, the, the tour may or not may or may not make it to Trafalgar Square, for example, where you've got the National Gallery, which was built in the 1830s, you know, largely with money paid back from kind of war financing, uh, if you like. So the Austrians pay back a load of their loans and, and all of a sudden Britain's cash rich. What do we do? Expand the British Museum and, and build the National Gallery, amongst other things. Um, so you've got the kind of cultural followings on from uh, the Napoleonic Wars. You've got things like Wellington Arch, and that's where we'll, that's where we'll start, which used to have the flipping great big statue of, of the Duke on top, um, which was certainly controversial in its day and, um, and went after the Duke died and is in Aldershot uh, now. But um, you know, pl plenty to talk about uh, with that, as well as kind of Apsley House, the Duke's, the, the Duke's residence there. Marcus twitched there at that point i see uh, <laughs> no easy okay dog problems um but yeah kind of uh trekking off you got the um uh the club where um uh st james's square uh, the east india club where uh, the eagle uh, well eagles in fact were uh, brought in as long with the um, the duke's dispatch uh, on the battle and, and presented to uh the the prince regent um and you know for Big, big party, many drinks to, to follow there, no doubt. Um, you have Waterloo Place, um, which actually kind of uh, on that spot, you've kind of got not too many links to Waterloo necessarily besides the, the name. I and mean, there's a big Crimean memorial there. And you know, there's the potential to discuss things like the Duke's um, role in army life after Waterloo, for, for example, and kind of how the army reforms or doesn't. Um, after Waterloo and how that sets things up for, for Crimea and oh, there's another example of charging at stuff um, of course with the, with the light brigade there um, and eventually we'll, we'll finish this tour on Horse Guards Parade with, um, with the Household Cavalry Museum itself and so the, the point is to have you know a, a nice stroll round through the Royal District of London talking about Napoleonic links, Waterloo links and, and things that we see nowadays and things that um, kind of uh, are kind of evidence of the Battle of Waterloo in our kind of everyday lives in London whether it's an architecture or, or just life generally um, and then setting people loose on the on the museum where they can see this fantastic eagle of course. Um, what's going to be so great about this walk is we've timed it so that you can see the mounted guard change, which happens every day just before it kicks off. The mounted guard change is a switcheroo between the one guard who's been working and one guard who's been preparing to come on. And we always do a lifeguards on switch with Blues and Royals. So no matter what day you come, you'll be able to see mounted Blues and Royals and mounted lifeguards, four bears of which were obviously at the battle in, in first lifeguard and second lifeguard format. And you'll be able to imagine if you, if you saw those very peaceful standing still horses um, with their blood up charging at you, what it would have felt like, um, you know, two, 200 years ago. And we're, we're very excited to have uh, the medal um, of Corporal Styles on site, which I don't think I mentioned earlier. Um, we, we came across on eBay. 
Um, so although he survived, he came back, he got a promotion, and, and, and we were talking earlier about the actual capture of the medal. Captain Kennedy Clark did claim, I say that three times fast, Captain Kennedy Clark claimed that he captured the eagle, um, and he claimed he, he ordered to attack the colour, attack the colour. But those who were present, and that is an officer, they questioned his uh, his his sort of description of what happened on the day. And those present, and the actual regiment backed the corporal over the officer. Uh, the officer ended up leaving the regiment. The corporal got promoted um, and he ended up uh, turning into an officer eventually. He sort of took his commission and he went to the West Indies. And one of the reasons we think he went to the West Indies is the fame of the situation was something he, he rallied against. It was such a big deal within the regiment and it became public knowledge that this had happened. And he sort of sent himself to the end of the end of the world for the for a West Indies posting, ended up leaving the army and, and died at the ripe old age of 43 in 1828. After he died, the, the medal went sort of went missing um, or it just disappeared. And we found it, uh, Corporal Horse Hendy found it on eBay in America or Canada when the Blues and Royals fundraised amongst themselves to buy it back. And we're very glad to have it back with Eagle together for the first time in 200 years. So his medal will now live in the museum um, and the eagle uh, we've, we've got on display temporarily and then we'll have our display eagle as well after that. And I will mm -hmm. say that the 21st of June was the day that the eagles, as as, as Lucky said, came back and, and were shown in St James's Square. That's the day we did the parade and our most awarded trooper of the year was the gentleman who carried the eagle and wore the medal. Um, on the day of the parade, and he, he said it was one of his most proud days in the regiment. He was flanked by his fellow soldiers, um, mounted Blues and Royals lifeguards and uh, ceremonial in green as well. And it was the only event of its kind. And it was an amazing day. So we hope people can come down and see see all of that culminating with the walking tour um, and the exhibition while it's still on. What an incredible bunch of stories. Not least, you know, you found this medal on eBay of all places. Uh, and then you, you fund, crowdfund within the regiment to get it back, which is just fantastic. I'm staggered that he took a West Indies posting mm, because, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's a graveyard yeah. posting, effectively. Yeah. You know, for folks who aren't familiar, the issue of disease was so prevalent out there that if you went out there, you didn't really expect to come back. Mm. And part of the issue that the West Indies regiments, West India regiments had or regiments that were being deployed out there was that everybody wanted to get a posting somewhere else because they didn't fancy their chances. That's staggering that he was Yeah, he commissioned and it was his choice. And I think that goes to show what a big scandal it was at the time for, I mean, the officer Kennedy Clark, as I said, he left the regiment, which is a big scandal in itself. And this would have been public knowledge. I mean, I've not, you know, got any reports, but socially the conversation would have been all over London that this had happened. And the question about, you know, who, who to believe would have been a, would have been a big issue. Um, and General Barney White Spunner um, says it's Corporal Styles, and I would never question General Barney White Spunner. So uh, he's got my vote. Wow, that's that's remarkable. So how long have you got the the actual eagle for? The actual eagle is with us until the end of September. So if you come down to the walking tour, you'll get to see it on that day. Um, but the time window is is closing. After that, we'll return to its home in the National Army Museum, which in itself is a fabulous display for anybody who's not been there. And you'll also be able to see the rest of Marengo's skeleton, even though we've got one of the one of the horse's hoops. So I think whether you see it on site with us or back at the NAM, you're going to have an amazing uh, visit. But it is temporarily with us next to the medal for, for what would, will likely be the only time in its in its life um, in this century. So we do hope people can come down and see it sometime between now and the end of the month. 
And I, I really do want to urge people to not only book to, to go on Lockie's tour, but also to go and see the House of Cafe Museum, because you've had a really tough time of it due to COVID, haven't you? It's been crazy. Um, we, we closed down in March 2020, as did everybody else. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, we were two weeks before before Easter or before the end of the financial year and, and two weeks was going to be difficult. And then we managed to trade for six days that year. That was to, from the financial year from April to April. Um, we're back open now a couple of days a week and we'll be opening little by little as much as we can. We hope that things pick up by Easter 22. We have a lot on and one of the things that we've seen as a bit of a silver lining is we've had a little bit more time to develop ideas and being a military museum we've titled these topics campaigns. Waterloo Summer 21 was the first of its kind. Uh, winter 21-22 we're, we're really excited we're going to be delving into the history of medicine so it's going to be called the evolution of medicine through warfare and we're really excited to have the last cat badged medics come and do some talks for us and we're also going to be speaking to Corey Mapp who is a double amputee who's now an Olympian some really great stuff um, but what we are hoping to do is every summer to come back to Waterloo because it's such a fascinating topic so this year we're looking at the eagle and the medal um, next year we'll find another topic hopefully archaeology and we'll keep coming back to it if there's an appetite for it we've definitely got the content um, one of the things that General Barney White Spanner said in his opening video for our exhibition is we know a lot about Wellington it's the everyday man that we don't know a lot about and those are the stories we're really trying to champion things we're really trying to learn about what it was like to be there you know how it led to peterloo how it led to the cato street conspiracy after that the shift change you know waterloo was the end of a huge it was the start and beginning and the end of a huge uh, change in social times so there's so much content that we hope to come back to this again and again it's a story after my own heart in terms of research interests and lucky i suspect this is the case for you you know it's it's ordinary people who make this right and you know yes we talk a lot about inverted commas, great men of history. But actually, when it's when you get some of the more personal stories that things, you, you kind of develop those quite moving connections. I mean, I'm guess, uh, please correct me if I'm speaking on your behalf there, Lockie, but is, is that the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I like how things kind of spin on and how history looks at them differently as time goes by as well. And, you know, and then a lot of kind of my work will be kind of with the monuments that come along after these things. And I often find you... you you can find out more about the people who put the monument up sometimes than you can about the um, the, the the people that the monument is supposed to create, uh, to, to to remember, as it as it were. So um, yeah, kind of the, the way that kind of different historical events, you know, shape times, and then the way we look look back on them uh, as well is is fascinating for me too. Alice, where can folks find out more about what you guys are are doing? And um, in case people don't know, where can they find you? You know, give go full kind of advert <laughs> on me go for it you, you've got <laughs> the simplest thing is to search hassle cavalry we have a new website in line with the veterans association so we share a website with our charity the hassle cavalry foundation and our veterans associations and then when you land on that hasselcavalry.co.uk you can choose to learn about our, our charitable work our museum and heritage work or the ongoing uh, lives of the veterans and the work they do. We've got HCAV Museum across all social media streams. And we have a Blue and Royal who I will 
sell out and tell you he has a tattoo of an eagle. I won't tell you where it is, but he definitely has a tattoo of an eagle who runs our social media. His Instagram posts are fabulous. Um, he tries to balance it out with lifeguards and blues and royals, but sometimes he doesn't manage it. He served in Afghan. He's the one that told me about the eagle on the wall at Camp Bastion. You know, we've got so much happening across our social media streams. Um, we've got an artist in residence working with us this year, doing oil paintings of these wonderful traditional jobs in modern settings. So we've got stuff online, we've got stuff on site. Come down and see. There's a little bit of something for everybody, whether it's the history, the military, the royals, the horses, or just what these people do when you see them in their incredibly beautiful uniforms looking sort of like a distant being on these 16-2 Irish draft horses. The moment they take their helmets off and smile at you, you know that they are humans and they've got a story behind each and every one. Come down and learn about those. We've been talking to the regiment. They know we've had a hard time and they are going to support us by sending soldiers into the museum to meet people. So you've got a question for a soldier? We've probably got a cheeky answer for you from a serving member of the regiment. That sounds perfect. And Lockie, your tour, how do people get tickets for it? Because people, Lockie knows his eggs, right? I, I, I'm deliberately being polite here because we're doing a professional kind of keep it clean history hack. You know what you're talking about. You've been doing this a long time. You've guided Waterloo. You've guided central London for Lord knows how many years now. I'm not implying that you're old. I'm just implying that you're experienced. Where, no, how, do they, yeah, how do they get on, on this tour? We're, we're on Eventbrite. I mean, I'll be sharing on my social media again anyway. And um, yeah, the Waterloo walking tour, Sunday 19th of September uh, is there. Yeah, so so this Sunday is when we're rolling it. And hopefully if we get, get a bit of interest. We can do it again uh, at some point too. Um yeah, I, I will just say that kind of of the few tours that I've run in London since kind of things started opening up again, um, the guards, the changing of the guards tours that I do occasionally, they've been more popular than than anything else I've done so far. So British Museum, City of London, you know, at East End, I do these other tours as well. I've done more changing of the guard tours than, than anything else. And so they do captivate people still. They do look fantastic. If you've not seen them for a while, just the simple kind of image of, uh, of these people either kind of marching as, as foot guards or, or mounted as they go about their business. Still, there is something very special about it. So yeah, come on down. Brilliant. Well, Alice, Lockie, thank you so much for joining me. Marcus has been rendered mute by his dog. Sorry. Um, but yeah, Alice, Lockie, thank you so much. All the best with the future um, of the Household Covering Museum and Lockie, good luck with the tour. Really hope that people sign up for it. Thank you. Hello folks, Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four, five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com 
forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub regulars, thank you, and have a great day. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.